Let's pray and we'll ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will please help us to understand your word this morning and uh, help us to delight in the good news that it tells us of, uh, of our identity and, and our purpose. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a question for you. Who are you? I don't mean what's your name. I don't mean what do you do for a job. I mean, what does it mean that you are you? What, what's, your, what's your true identity? Here's another question. What are you for? What, what's the purpose of your existence? Why are you here on this earth? These are deep questions, aren't they? Probably as deep as you can get in terms of self-reflection. I've got to say, most of the time I don't think very deeply. What's for dinner? <laughs> What's on TV? Those are pretty much the sorts of things that occupy my mind. I'm pretty superficial. and I don't think I'm alone in this modern world in being superficial. I think it's getting worse, actually. It seems to me that most people are so utterly distracted by their electronic devices that they keep these sorts of deeper questions at bay. We rarely think about anything significant. We rarely think about who we are or what we're for. But friends, I don't think social media gives good answers to the deep questions. I don't think your Facebook profile is who you really are, your true and deep identity. I don't think you exist to entertain other people with your photos on Instagram. We're an extremely distracted people, but despite our best efforts to avoid them, these, these questions keep lurking in the back of our minds, don't they? Who am I? What am I here for? You can't ignore these questions forever. They're, they're too important. Well, last week we worked our way through this first section of Genesis. We saw the, the brilliant structure, the way God gives form to the formlessness of uncreation and then he fills the emptiness of uncreation. We thought about some of the amazing, uh, not just the brilliant structure, but we thought about some of the amazing content there as well, the eternal nature of God, the, the power of God's word, the goodness of creation. And, and we remembered that as our maker, God is our owner. Well, today we're going to zero in on the last part of this first section of Genesis, and we're going to think about people. We're going to focus on the creation of mankind, and we'll think also about the Sabbath day. And, and here in this passage, we will see some profound and I think delightful answers to these deepest, most important questions of life. We start off in chapter 1 and verse 26. So God has created all the animals, and now he stops and he discusses his final act of creation. Not exactly clear who God is talking to here. Uh, maybe there's an early hint of the Trinitarian nature of God. Maybe he's talking to his royal court of angels. Uh, either way, uh, God says that he's going to create people. And there are two important things that he says about people, two critical things. Uh, first, they will be in the image and likeness of God. And second, they will rule. They'll be put in charge of God's creation made in the image and likeness of God to rule God's creation. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Have a look with me. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Uh, The author then talks a bit more. He uses a little poem about how people were made in the image and likeness of God. The the way the poem's structured, I won't show it all to you. It takes a bit of time, but it, it shows that the image and likeness of God is related to being male and female. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's actually a lot of debate about what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, Three main schools of thought about it. Uh, Some people say that what it means to be in the image and likeness of God, it means that we are God's representatives here on earth. So background, uh, uh, back in those days, a king or an emperor, what they would do, they'd set up statues, images of of themselves, in areas that they had conquered. And the statue, the image, represented the king's rule in that area. If that's the right background here, then us being in God's image, it means that that we rule the world as God's representatives. Of course, that's exactly what the text says. We just saw it in verse 26. Let us create mankind in our image so that they may rule. So there's, there's merit to this suggestion. Um, other people argue that being in the image of God means that we somehow resemble God. Uh, like someone would say to me that I'm the image of my father. It, it means that we have similar characteristics. We resemble each other. It's, Again, a fair bit of debate about uh, what the similar characteristics are that we have with God. It's it's not physical characteristics, I don't think, because God is spirit. But uh, maybe it's our consciousness. Maybe our ability to to think or to reason. Maybe it's our moral capacity to to, um, make moral decisions. Again, I think there's something to this suggestion. It's a good suggestion. It makes sense of being in the image and likeness of God. To be in in the image means you resemble God in some ways. Uh, Third school of thought, other people argue that being in the image of God is a relational thing. It it refers to our capacity to relate to each other and to God. Now, we just saw in verse 27, there's a connection between being in the image of God and being made male and female. In a moment, we'll see that God um, makes us for Sabbath relationship, and we'll see that uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. So again, there's merit to this suggestion as well. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the true and ultimate image of God. Uh, But all three of these suggestions apply to Jesus. He is God's true representative on on earth, the ruler. He is perfectly God-like in his character and his relationship with God is perfect. So, well, maybe there's truth in all of these suggestions. But, But whatever it exactly means, the significance of being in the image of God is this. People are valuable. Both men and women. People are more valuable than animals. People are more valuable than plants. People are made in the image and likeness of God. That makes them and their lives important. Do you know what, friend? It means that you matter. Your life matters to God and therefore it matters objectively. The author then tells us more about how God gave people the task of ruling the world. Uh, He puts humanity in charge of his good world under his authority 
and then that's it. God's creation is finished. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. I should say this, this idea that we're made rulers of the world, that we're to subdue the earth, it's got a, fair, it's got a bit of a bad name um, in some circles today. Some people have argued that uh, um, this encourages us to exploit the world, to, to wreck the environment and so on. Now, for example, in her famous and very insightful 1967 essay, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, Lynn White wrote this. We shall continue to have a worsening ecological crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Historically, I actually have to admit that it's true. People have used passages like Genesis 1 to justify exploitation of the environment. They use the idea that we rule creation, that we're to subdue creation as an excuse for their own greed, effectively. But I don't think it's a right way to use Genesis chapter 1. Do you? Um, Genesis 1 makes clear that this is God's world. We're put here to rule the world under his authority. Next week we'll see he puts Adam in the garden to take care of it. There's plenty in scripture to show that we should be caring for this world as stewards, not, not greedily exploiting and destroying God's world. Anyway, the point is, God makes us rulers of the world under him. So two big aspects. Two big aspects to humanity here at creation. You remember what they are? We're made in the image and likeness of God and we're given the task, given the task of ruling the world, God's world. Last part of this creation story. Last part, God has finished his working week and he rests from his work. And God does two things with his day off. First, he blesses it. He's, 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 he's happy about it. Um, he, he likes Saturday. It's a good day for him. It's a day of joy, a day of delight. Uh, God blesses the day. And second, God makes it holy. He sets it apart for himself. This is his day. It belongs to him. Chapter 2 and verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God rests, and then that sends us into the next section of the book describing the rest where God is in the Garden of Eden, enjoying relationship with the people he's created, walking with them in the cool of the evening, it says. Do you know know what, friends? I think this bit about Sabbath is the whole point of the story. It's why the author uses the seven-day structure to tell the story of creation. He's showing that God has a purpose. He has a goal in creation. He has a purpose for us. Just think about it for a minute. Why did God bother 
Why did God create the heavens and the earth? It's not like he was lonely. It's not like he was unhappy. It's not like he was needy or anything like that. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? What was the reason? Here's the answer. Here's the answer of Genesis 1. He did it for his own pleasure. For, for the delight that he would have in sharing Sabbath fellowship with his people. As the old song goes, everybody's working for the weekend. It's true of God as well. He created this world and he created you and me for the weekend. He created us to, to, to enjoy being with him on his happy, holy day. That's what you were made for. It's what you were made for. To enjoy Sabbath fellowship with God. Now, I suppose at this point I should address the elephant in the room. Um, some people get, uh, get very passionate about the idea of God creating in six literal historical days. And uh, I have to say I have a lot of sympathy for their sentiments. Uh, as Christians, we ought to believe that the Bible is God's word. It is true. And if what the Bible says clashes with human reason, we ought to believe the Bible. For example, the Bible says a God is both three and one. He is Trinity. That might, might not make a lot of sense to the mathematicians. Uh, we might not be able to work it out logically. But if the Bible says it, we ought to believe it. Uh, similarly, if the Bible is saying here that God created in six literal days, but scientists say that it took millions of years, we ought to believe the Bible and not scientists. God is all-powerful. He can create in six days. He can create in six seconds. And if this is saying that he historically did it, then he did. I got lots of sympathy for the sentiments of six-day creationists. We ought to hold to the supremacy of the Bible. And I should say I've got no sympathy for people who try to fudge the passage here in Genesis chapter 1. For example, it's clear that this passage is talking about 24-hour days. And there was evening and there was mourning. It's not talking about periods of time that could be millions of years. It's talking about ordinary working days of the week. As Christians, we must hold to the truth and the supremacy of the Bible. But having said that, it's possible for us to interpret the Bible wrongly. The Bible is true, but our interpretation of it might not be. And at the same time, it's possible for scientists to correctly understand reality. I believe that the Bible is true, but I also believe that true science is true. So therefore, I believe this. The Bible rightly interpreted will match with science rightly practiced. Did you get that? If you interpret the Bible correctly, it will match with accurate science, with true science, correct science. Now, the vast majority of scientists today will tell you that the world was not created in six 24-hour days. They'll tell you the Earth was created over a period of millions of years. So, if we read the Bible as saying that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days, then there's one of two problems. Uh, either the scientists are doing their science wrongly, 
or else we're interpreting the Bible wrongly. Can, can, can you see that? That's, that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, the Bible rightly interpreted will match with science rightly practiced. They're both capable of truth. Uh, so if, if they disagree, then either the scientists have it wrong or else we're misinterpreting the Bible. Now, I don't, I don't pretend to be a scientist. Not my intention to tell you what may or may not be right or wrong about the science of all this. But, but I do want us to think about this. Are we interpreting the Bible correctly? Is it correct to interpret Genesis 1 as saying that creation happened in six literal 24-hour days? And I reckon the key issue here is what's called the issue of genre. The issue of genre. Uh, it is possible for the Bible to say something true that may not be scientifically or historically true. For example, the Bible says in Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. I think it would be, mis it would be to misread that passage to argue that the sun actually rises and goes down that the sun revolves around the earth rather than the earth around the sun. Now, the Bible is not making a false scientific statement there about the sun rising. The Bible is making a true statement in a poetic way that God deserves to be praised all day. Another example would be to try to argue that the prodigal son was a literal historical person. I'm pretty confident that there never was any such person as the prodigal son. I don't think he existed in history but that doesn't detract from the truth of the story because the prodigal son appears in a parable, not a historical narrative. Now, the problem with these examples, they fail to be sensitive to literary genre. So, the big question is this, what is the genre of Genesis 1? Now, some people, uh, some people say that Genesis 1 is definitely historical narrative. Other people say it's definitely some kind of poem. The fact is, we actually have very little ancient Hebrew literature to make comparisons. It's, it's not really possible to definitively describe Hebrew literature and Hebrew genre. And, and right through church history, there's been debate about how you should read the genre of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in fact, even before Jesus, you can find debate about this. Authors like Philo, who uh, before... Jesus was even born, they argued that the days in Genesis 1 are metaphorical. Uh, thinking about genre here is not just a response to modern science, it's not a new thing, it's a very ancient debate. Uh, I'm not convinced we can be definitive about genre. I think we should be a bit, a bit reticent about it, a bit humble about it. But I do think there are some things we can say about the genre of Genesis 1. It uh, seems pretty clear to me that this passage contains at least some elements that are poetic in style. We saw it last week. Uh, the way that the story of creation is told is built around the idea of formless and empty. Days one to three are making form. Days four to six are filling the emptiness. You remember the picture and you would have done it in Bible study as well. And so, for example, in the story, God creates uh, light and dark, day and night on day one, but the sun, moon and stars aren't created until day four. Now, again, this is an issue that's been discussed for hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, how do you have light and day and night without sun and moon and stars? Answer, well, maybe there's a scientific explanation. Or maybe the author is following the pattern of formlessness and emptiness rather than telling things in a chronological order. Maybe he's being poetic about it. 
The passage has other poetic features, rhyming like tohu and vohu, uh, rhythm, lot, lots of repetition, and God said, and there was morning and there was evening, God saw that it was good. Uh, interesting poetic features. Also, also, as I've said, I believe that the seven-day structure is there for a reason other than necessarily being historical. It, it vividly reveals the purpose, the goal, the end of creation. Why is God working? His purpose is to be in Sabbath fellowship with his people. Now, none of this rules out that Genesis 1 could be historical. None of this rules out that we should read this as being seven literal historical days. As I say, I just don't think we know enough about ancient Hebrew genre to be too definitive about it. If Genesis 1 is history, I believe it. And I believe that if it is history, that science will eventually work it out. But I should say this. I am not going to lose my faith in the truth of the Bible if the reality is that the earth was created over millions of years. If someone proves definitively, I don't know how they would, but if someone proves definitively that the earth is millions of years old, I'm not going to start thinking that the Bible is wrong. I'm not going to chuck in my faith. What I will think is, it's a genre issue. Genesis 1 says true things about creation, about God, about his word, about the goodness of creation, about the goal of creation. Genesis 1 says true things about creation, but... A bit like from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. It's possible that Genesis 1 says these things, these true things, in a poetic way. Okay, sorry that was a long digression. I know it's uh, very important to, to some people. I know for some people it's why they're not Christians. I know for other people it's very important, the seven days. Um, and I do want to say this. Um, I hear a fair bit of uncharitableness in the way people talk about this issue. People label each other as fundamentalists or liberals. They doubt each other's motives as if they're not genuinely trying to understand scripture. I've got no problem with people debating this issue. Excellent, but can I encourage you not to join in the kind of angry polemic that you see about this. Do work hard to be gracious and godly. All right. That was all a digression. Let's come back to the passage. Can you see what's here in the passage? It's actually saying it's very, very important, isn't it? God creates people in his image to rule over creation and to enjoy Sabbath fellowship with him, to share in his blessed and holy day. Friends, these are profoundly important truths, aren't they? Who are you? What are you for? The answer's here. We are created by God in his image to rule the world as his representatives and to be in delightful Sabbath fellowship with him. And friends, magnificently, as we move into the New Testament, we see all of this gloriously fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, we're told in Colossians chapter 1, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the perfect man. Uh, Jesus is also the true ruler of the earth. Matthew 28, can you remember what Jesus says? Uh, right at the end of Matthew 28, he says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the ruler of the world, the true human. Or, or um, uh, also talks about how, in the New Testament about how Jesus brings his people into the true and ultimate Sabbath, uh, into a, ultimately a new heaven and earth where we will delight with God forever. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Sabbath rest. 
God made you in his image to rule the world as his representative, to be in delightful, eternal Sabbath fellowship with him forever. In Jesus, you can fulfill your created purpose. You can have a taste of it here on earth and you can have it in all its glorious fullness in the new creation. I reckon this is magnificent news, don't you? One of my favourite Peanuts cartoons, um, I was just thinking about it this morning, um, uh, Lucy's looking out the window and it's, it's raining like this. And uh, she's, she's feeling, feeling really stressed. And, and uh, she, she turns to Linus and she says, oh, you know, I see a day like today and I think, gee, what if the whole world floods? And uh, Linus says to her, the whole world's not going to flood. Um, God promised, Gen- Genesis chapter 9, that he's not going to flood the world again. And, and, and the rainbow is the sign of the promise. And she goes, oh, thank you. you. You've really, you've taken a load off my mind. And then Linus says this, this beautiful line, he goes, He says, sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) So friends, let me conclude by saying this. Here's the application. Here's the sound theology that I think is really comforting. If you're trusting Jesus, you have an identity worth having. You're somebody. If you're trusting Jesus, you have a life worth living. You don't have to be miserable. You don't have to spend your life distracting yourself from some terrible fear of existential meaninglessness. You are precious to God. He loves you. He's got a glorious purpose, a magnificent future for you. All we've got here, beautiful, comforting answers to the deepest questions of life. And friends, that should enable us to, 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 to live with delight and with joy and with hope and with purpose. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we fulfill our created purpose, made in your image, to rule the world and to be in eternal, joyous, Sabbath fellowship with you. Lord, thank you for making us with meaning and and, and purpose and value. And thank you so much that it all comes to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.